Hey everybody. Hey Dan. Hey Daniel. Hey everyone. Um, maybe we'll start uh, while I have you here, Daniel, um, about uh, Austria. I'm going to put in the nest here another um, article that came out from Financial Post uh, about the changes that they might be putting in. Uh, I'm just curious, like, I, I mean, because this one's especially funny. It says. Banking watchdog seeks input on beefing up homebuyer stress tests as default risks rise. Uh, it sounds like they're kind of doing like a public com- consultation. So who knows? Maybe they'll listen into this or, uh, or listen to the recording, which I thought was kind of funny. But what do you like? What is actually an accessible policy uh, move for them to uh, to do here? Like what? I mean, I, I don't like. Is it the only thing I think is is stress test circumvention that's creating risk? Right? Like. People co-signing till they qualify. I don't know. I, like, I think it's a bit of that. I think it's, I think it's uh, a bit of the I, like. I think in their position right now, they're more or less saying, um, and this, you know, this is just my opinion or my interpretation. They were saying we implemented the stress test for reasons that many people thought were invalid at the time. Now they're valid. So whatever we called has come to light, and it's our position to, um, I guess, reassess reassess things and that includes public consultation so what they do with the commentary from the public i guess is anyone's guess but it looks like they're nonetheless going through the motions of bringing this i guess to the consumers to professionals and so on and so forth but what they do with this i don't know and what the general consensus and feedback is from the public i i don't know i guess everyone has their own opinion and um there's always great minds on this chat so i'm interested to see what everyone thinks yeah, I'm I'm curious from a from a policy perspective as well, like what um what would possibly be achievable to to remove some of the risk. I mean, I think like the the, out, the outlying risk in in the you know related to interest rates, like that's within the regulatory scope of of OSFI is is renewals, right? Like I think that most of the risk, I would I would certainly hope that most of the risk um would be would have been realized in rate hikes right like on the variable side so the fixed side is like really and somebody posted a chart here i'll I'll try and pull it up but um you know where i think two-thirds or something or sorry no like a third of mortgages will renew in the next two years 
Um, and they're not going to be at rates, obviously, that are like, so those capital costs are ticking time bombs as well. But you can't, like, no, pol- nothing, there's nothing policy you can do to change that. I think, yeah, if there's a con, I mean, listen, like, it's, it's the same story. I mean, there, there's a contract rate for X amount of term. And at, at the point of maturity, if market pricing is different than it was at the time of contract, then those rates will prevail. Um, and to your point, the question becomes, will there be some sort of underwriting scrutiny involved at the renewal level? And if so, I think that will have a huge effect because I think, um, as, as everyone knows, renewals are a pretty seamless process with institutional mortgages uh, to, the fact, to the point where uh, it's usually a letter in the mail or an email um, and they really just need your autograph and your choice of term at that point. Um, the second underwriting to these, sta- I guess, to these standards, to a stress test standard and a higher rate environment, that could now um, see, I think that there's two issues with this. Well, there's good and there's bad, I guess, depending on what side of the fence you're on. But um, there's two issues now. If they're starting to underwrite at the renewal level and someone is no longer able to qualify for the same product at renewal, well, now they have two choices, depending on the equity, um, and I guess their their position on home ownership. Do they then need to start listing and selling their property because the renewal is no longer on the table? And or are they now subjected to non-bank financing at higher rates, at higher payments, um, and, and, you know, to be continued? Yeah. Uh, have you been hearing about, um, I'm going to jump to Stephen after this Please. as well, because I'm curious about the policy side, but have you been hearing about at all, like soft uh, calling of loans? Like, I, I don't know if it's happening on the A side at all, but like on the B side, maybe not calling, but like, uh, you know, I, I personally have had it happen on a, on a B loan where they were like, yeah, like the deal doesn't fit the criteria anymore. Right. Like it was, a, it was a investment deal. So the debt service coverage ratios at new, they knew cause it was, a, I had a one year and I made the wrong call on rates. Um, but, um, they, they can they basically, I called them. I was like, why aren't, why, why don't we have a renewal? And they were like, while we just know based on the underwriting that we have for the deal that rents are, aren't going to change, like even if we model on a best case scenario, um, we will, you know, we know that, that it's not going to debt service or it won't hit the DSCR. So we're just not going to offer you a renewal. And I was like, okay, well, like, I mean, I guess that makes sense. But have you heard, like, is that, is that happening at scale? Cause like they, they just knew that I wasn't going to check, like fit the box. Right. So they just yeah, didn't waste uh, any time. I think with- some lenders might be, and th- this is institutional, this is private. This is anyone with money out in the market at this point. But I think some lenders are looking for a reason to recoup their capital. Um, some lenders right. are looking for a reason to, recoup their capital and put the same money back out at market rates. Right. So I'm seeing, and other people can can attest, but um, they're, they're, you know, among or uh, within the, the fury of non-renewals, these also include performing loans. These non-renewals could, could be sent to someone who's made every single payment. They've been a good borrower and the lender's just not happy that they decided to write, you know, a, a private mortgage called a 599, fixed rate at the start of 2022 and they're they're looking at their book and they're looking at market rates and they're saying hold on a second this this same bloody loan uh could be priced at 899 or nine and a half so you know so what they've made their payments i want out and i want the money back out again 
Um, that could be one reason. I think different uh, lenders, they may have their own, um, it might be a portfolio um, situation where maybe they have restraints or maybe X amount of the book uh, shouldn't, you know, they had tolerance at one point to be maybe uh, extending or overextending in certain, uh, maybe it's like a non-conforming type loan. Uh, I, I don't really know that. Uh, I can really only speculate. But uh, but on the private side, there's there's a lot of non-renewal to get that money back out. Or there are people just saying, look, I'm I'm going to sit on the bench for a bit and let them go somewhere else. And, you know, thanks very much. We'll wait for the next investment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Stephen, do you have any insight on on what OSFI might be? I mean, it sounds like they started saying we're going to try and make some some legislative changes here to 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 tighten the the risk uh in the lending space but then a couple of days later you know the public opinion or the public insight piece has kind of been like maybe they they don't really know exactly what they're they're aiming to do here um do you have any idea like what what osfi might be thinking in regards to policy and what what's like the low-hanging fruit to to de-risk the market as they're mentioned so Osfi kind of sent me like a second email to be like dude do you see this <laughs> uh so i feel like they're very excited about this regulation and we have to understand that they're seeing a lot more issues than we're seeing and today they brought up clps again uh which are combined loan plans that's when your mortgage is also combined with your HELOC. So you make a mortgage payment that becomes available as a HELOC. And what they're seeing is sort of people are perpetually maintaining their debt. They just, they make a payment, they borrow it again, and they're worried that this is hiding financial vulnerability. And with higher interest rates, they can't actually resolve that issue. Like people are hiding the fact that they're not able to keep up with the current financial system. So I don't think that they would hammer on CLPs if they this many times. So they brought it up this month. They brought it up in December. They brought it up in November. They brought it up in July. They brought it up in March. So clearly something is happening <laughs> in terms of that risk where they're not discussing it, uh, where they're not flat out saying it. What we've kind of seen with these consultations are they aren't really consultations so much as it's the legal requirement for them to they see a problem, they want to fix it, unless you can explain why those problems would be catastrophic to the industry. I don't think that they're going to change their direction. And the things that they're talking about, like loan-to-income ratios, uh, so the loan-to-income ratio, that's the definition in banking of whether or not someone is over-leveraged. So if your loan is more than 450%, of your income, like the size of your loan in total, um, you're considered an overleveraged borrowers, an overleveraged borrower. And at small, le- small and mid-tier lenders, they were seeing about fifty percent. Like the small lenders were seeing about fifty percent of their mortgage originations in I think it was Q one twenty twenty one go to overleveraged borrowers. Uh, the problem with small lenders, as you might assume is that they can't just readily absorb that kind of loss as easily as say a big six bank if that mortgage becomes problematic um same thing with mid-tiers mid-tiers was a little better at i think uh it peaked at around 45 percent in general one in three mortgages that are that were issued in the most recent quarter of data were going to these highly leveraged borrowers so 
I, New Zealand recently did a loan to income situation and that was implemented by their central bank, not their bank regulator. But uh, I definitely think that we're seeing that come. Um, I think they're not loosening the stress test. I think uh, new accounting rules around the how lenders are supposed to quantify the risk uh, for non-occupied housing, so investor properties. Um, that's coming up. It, I think it's at the end of Q1. Uh, so right now, heading into this recession with these overpriced homes, and we've flat out heard the head of OSPI say, this is a bubble. It's going to pop. <laughs> Things are going to be bad. Um, so they're preparing the banks. And that's exactly what the bank regulator is supposed to do. They regulate the banks. They protect the banks. They're not supposed to protect you. They're not supposed to give you money. Um, they're supposed to be the adults in the room and ensure that we have a financial system that continues to operate um, regardless of whether or not you're making money. It's like we need to live to see another day type of thing. And things are really problematic at the loan level. And when things are going up, everything is fine. Um, like you don't mind if you're over leveraged and you're making the craziest payment or like 50% of your income is going through it or you committed mortgage fraud to get that property because you're seeing, you're making $10,000, $20,000 a month as prices are going up. Now when prices are coming down at $10,000 a rate, that pressure is coming really fast. And if you didn't have the money to enter that highly leveraged loan and it's coming down, you don't have the money to sell because um, what we're seeing in a lot of situations are these properties, a lot of properties would technically be uh, underwater at a conventional mortgage if they put in the lowest amount. So a lot of entry-level buyers that may have stretched themselves are now underwater. The lenders obviously aren't going to check that. I know that guideline B20 uh, requires that they actually do check that. But when I discussed this with OSFI a little while ago, they said, if you're renewing, the lender has to check the loan to value ratio, but the they don't need to do it at the exact moment that they're doing the renewal. So they just need to be conscious of that property's value. They don't need to ensure that, hey, could we actually, like, is this a positive value when this person's renewing? Because if someone's paying their mortgage and even if they're negative value, that isn't necessarily a risk for that lender as long as they can continue to pay that it becomes a risk when they can no longer pay that and they kind of stick them with uh with a bill so yes <laughs> right i i'm interested because like I, I you know a lot of people were from the perspective that and like even you know the, in, on these spaces like this time last year it was like yeah the renewal comes like you just check a box right like are we entering into a period because like i'm just it seems to me like the only place where there's risk to be controlled and like maybe loan to income, like you're saying, but loan to income on purchase or loan to income on renewal, right? Like to me, the risk that needs to be controlled for here and, and Daniel, feel free to chime in as well, like is on the renewal, right? Like I think that there, any, any existing risk on the transaction side or new owners or whatever is, has been realized, I think. Right. And like, yeah, it might take some time for those realized risks to, manifest in whatever they are, delinquency, um, power of sales, fit, you know, whatever it is like, but, but there's also another, like, I think it's their job to not just mitigate or to, to mitigate risk, not to 
solve problems that already exist. So is, are we talking more specifically about renewal? Like, and, and, or, or is there something I'm missing? Like, is there yeah. something they can do to de-risk existing purchase? Cause I feel like rates and the stress test has already, and prices coming down has already de-risked the transaction side enough. Right. Well, has it? Because my- I, I personally think like it depends, I guess it depends how much more downside there is and then how much more, like, I guess it depends on your outlook, but it, like if prices come down significantly more than maybe not. And if, if wages or if, if unemployment rises significantly and a lot of people can't pay their mortgages because they don't have jobs, but like, I don't know if that's within the scope of OSFI to, to regulate, right. Like, or to, 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 yeah, for the most I mean? part, like, all they can do is hope that the existing mortgages do not uh, blow up and new mortgages like a third of them are still going to highly like would you expect with interest rates where they are right now that a third of the people that are buying a home are stretching themselves into this market as it's going down like it's it's kind of wild like it's not cooling to the extent that it should have been um but even more so one of the lessons that i think that are hidden from the from like the Great Recession, uh, from the U.S. housing bubble when it popped and default rates soared, um, most like we have this narrative that it was subprime people, but it was investors that were using subprime loans. They were over, they were in, investors with high credit scores that could normally get a prime loan or a super prime loan, and they needed more leverage, so they went, they overleveraged themselves, and they went with really shitty loans. And then when the defaults started to rise. If you own a home, you do everything you can to make sure that you continue to own that home, right? Um, like, you don't need to sell it. You need a place to live, like a place to live and things to eat. That's your fund. So people will spend 70% of their income on that, and they will survive if that's what it comes down to. Right. An investor doesn't have that interest, right? Like, if you start to see, if you're taking a $100,000 loss or a $200,000 loss on a property, um, you start to think, Mm, I don't want this to start cutting into my regular, my regular income or my regular life. Right. Uh, I I think Ron Butler had a good insight the other day where he was talking about um, how that leverage completely disappeared. Uh, like right. people were borrowing on top of their properties, and that's completely disappeared. And I think that right. that's sort of the thing that they're trying to do. They're trying to bring it back down to. Like regular investors, like investors that sit down with a piece of paper and look at their yields and determine whether or not this makes any sense actually yeah. build. Yeah, I mean, those are people I would call investors. And I think like the ones that you're describing as individuals who could potentially create like a race to the bottom or, or supply flood scenario, which I do believe there's potential for. Like it does, I'm not discounting that there's, there's real possibility that, that could happen in the market. Those would be speculators, right? People who depend on or depended on the value appreciation for the past X amount of years. And now all of a sudden, because like the, the piece, the big part of that is like, they need to lock in that, that revenue, let's call it that equity. Like they need to make the investment viable. And every day that the, the equity or the capital appreciation goes down, the investment becomes less good. Right. So, because it's not like they're cash flowing in, in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, I call them speculators because they're not, um, right. not really speculators, but they're under the impression that they're landlords. And it's like, you're negative cap. So what happens if the property stops appreciating? And it's like, it'll never stop appreciating. And it's like, okay, so you're right. a speculator, but you're really convinced you're a landlord. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would I would argue that like anybody who who's if, if your deal doesn't if you, if you can't cash flow your deal without or sorry if you if your deal if your investment thesis doesn't make sense without capital appreciation then you're a speculator not an investor right like if 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 the and that 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 would be my distinction right that's like the even if you're modeling it at six point one one percent which is I think annual growth since like nineteen eighty four right. Um, even at that, I still think that's speculation because it's speculating that that, that that's going to continue. And that's what that regulation is trying to hit, right? It's trying to hit that right. person who is pretending that they're buying a second property for themselves, but really they have ideas no, but, of becoming a landlord. But aren't they, in, in reality, aren't they getting their renters to pay off their house, like even build equity, even though I know they have to go over in their terms of like their negative cash flow, but somebody else is paying off your investment like in five, 10 years, like when the not really like, no? I th- well, I mean, okay, it, we, sure. Let's call it, let's for the sake of it, call it an investment. It's a, it's a bad investment like, objectively. 100%. Like, yeah, I agree. But no, but like you could go and put like, that's a huge, that's an opportunity cost, right? If you were to take yeah. all that money and put it into all of the interest that you're losing, plus, so like you're paying 400 bucks, it's a savings vehicle Yeah, right? it's really what it is. Yeah. It's that's like a savings account that's going backwards on you for a short period of time. But still, monthly payment-wise, X amount, like 50% a year is going into your mortgage at least, right? And who's paying that? Uh, most of it is being paid by renter, right? Right now, uh, if, yeah. if, if that's the case, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it depends on the situation. I think in a lot of cases, probably not. Like, no, but don't you think a... like, by, like, if go, like one, government can't really increase rates past like 5 to 6%, right? So they're all- I don't know. Like, Until they do it. Yeah. Right. Of course. <laughs> I mean, so everybody said that. I mean, literally on this space, people yeah. who are way smarter than I no, am but were I, saying we would never see a 5%. No, no, right? no. That's not the point, right? The point I'm trying to make is like if you manage, uh, if you look at a U.S. government debt, it's mostly in short-term note, right? Like it's a 2 to 5% uh, five-year note. And if the two-year continues to stay at elevated level and pushes towards 6 their personal, like the revenue they're collecting will go towards it, right? So I think they will do other stuff. They will just use policy to kill the market, right? Like if you look at what China did, they control their whole financial market and they chose which parts to kill and then they supported the other parts. And like right now, uh, this part is the question, like whenever I talk to realtors right now, they're saying people are people have tons of cash. They're just waiting. They're bringing it from abroad, like yeah. new people who are coming, who are getting PR right now. They're like, they have yeah. cash waiting. They're just waiting to stay stability in the market and i think so 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 the real game is like do you believe that like is that what you you is that you think that that's the case like i spoke to 10 people today out of that five people told me they have like about seven to eight buyers each with cash ready to go three months waiting period like your cash is like ready to use like two three hundred k ready and how many of them would qualify for a mortgage though well, yeah, that's that's a different well, part. And, and that's well, what I'm trying to tell that's you, the right? Problem, right? No, no, no. These guys are coming in. They're ready Private. to go. So what I get, government doesn't want that demand. So what I'm trying to say is I think there's so much optimism. Government will just use different policies. Rates might not go up. They'll use policy to control the demand. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I suppose, but I think like the only way, like I don't really know exactly what that would look like, but it, other than immigration, no, you should, right? But like uh, I think you tweeted something about like how they want to tighten up the stress test, right? 
Yeah, but we're like they want to make some changes too. But I, I guess my thought was in the sort of the the beginning part of this conversation was like that they can't really, like I don't think there's gonna, that's going to take any more risk out of the market. Like acquisition isn't where the risk is happening right now, except unless there's like for, a lot more downside in price, or if there's a lot of more downside or a lot more risk to be realized in unemployment, yeah. right? People's inability to service those loans if they buy today. As yeah. Yeah. So the real issue is basically like for four months, they might be able to muster up the money to pay up their high elevated payments. But what happens on the 10th or like the 11th month and the way it's going to go on more likely right now, what's priced in the market is up until March rates are going up. Then they stay at that level until September, October, and then it comes down. Right. But at the same time, GDP and all this uh, like fundamental data in U.S. economy is coming so positive right now. So Fed can't even say like, oh, let's let's pivot or like let's not even raise rates, right? And if China right. actually opens up, and that stimulus comes into the economy, that alone will cause like short-term boost in growth and demand. And and if it pushes up like oil and other commodities then like uh, they will be forced to maybe raise again. So like, I mean, that's the only thing I can see that will make them raise rates. But apart from that, I think likely they, if China's thing is not that, because it's all demand destruction, right? Like that's what I'm thinking from my side. If it's demand destruction, how much stimulus can China bring into the global economy? And they want West to be attacked, right? Like under stress, they want them to, like at the end of it is printing, right? Like, and when is when that printing going to start is a real question, right? Is it going to happen by end of this year or next year? And when it happens, how would we strategize for it, right? Yeah, I guess. I uh, I, I still think that there's like lag impacts, at least on the price side. Like if you're talking about strategizing on, on investment, uh, you know, I, I think timing on on price matters in their asset this size especially levered um and i don't i think i i honestly just get the feeling that the bottom of the canadian real estate market is going to be exceptionally long uh like and i think it's kind of starting today and it'll be slow grind down but i think it's going to take several years before anything starts to to to, to, steady downward flow for like a decade yeah like i i a decade may be a bit long but uh, i mean nothing would surprise me at this point interesting okay I think right, like I just it, it like given that the way our our, our loans are structured, yeah. like we you know like everybody is either on a variable rate and the risk has been realized there, and those people are uh, they're feeling financial stress, and they we haven't even seen the supply consequences of that that yet. Then we still have every single year. Let's just assume that that mortgage terms are spread out perfectly over the every single year. You have twenty percent of people renewing at a new rate, right, on a five year term. So, like, just statistically, if that was the case, uh, like, then until all of those people are like, until everybody's renewed at the new rate, experience that financial stress for a, for a period of time, like, it takes the lag the lagging effect of of rates being higher for longer or even being higher than they were at an emergent on an emergency basis is going to take years to materialize from my perspective. And the only, like there's, I don't think there is anything that they could do to stimulate it beyond dropping rates back to emergency levels. I understand that. So basically you're, you're, uh, well, five year, right? Like you're basically trying to say like, it's like a regime change kind of situation where uh, inflation will stay elevated and uh, you will be just because of supply chain disruption alone, right? Like the new state is never going to be 2019. 
it's going to be higher, right? Like it's going to be like 4% average inflation and rates will stabilize around three or four, right? Or is it, uh, I'm off. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I tried, I try and avoid the forecasting side of it. Okay. Um, uh, trying to figure out like, cause, cause, well, I was uh, like, based on the research I'm uh, hearing and like uh, following right now, they're, they're, what they're trying to say is like, it, like you can play the whole cycle, right? Like nothing will go down or like rates won't keep on going up or like stabilize here for longest period of time. It'll, it'll oscillate. And that oscillation can go for a whole year. And you can take, like there will come a time by end of this year, if not early next year, where bonds would be a good play. And if got, bonds are good play, isn't housing like part of that good play? It's like all our, uh, 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 yields play, right? Rate sensitive stuff. Recent. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Um, Stephen, Stephen, sorry, you've had your hand up for a bit. You want to jump in? Oh, uh, yeah. I was actually just going to say I'm heading out. Thanks. I look forward to actually um, hearing the recording of this. Yeah, yeah. All good. Uh, but what I will leave you with is that immigration doesn't necessarily lead to higher home prices, especially when there's a structural change in the way that the economy is being set up like right now we're go we're um actually i think daniel did this interview where you talked to stephen polos and you were uh talking about the fourth industrial revolution like about a third of people are going to require retraining between now and 2030 so that's going to become a downward pressure so even with higher immigration and we saw this in the 90s and that economic pressure was outsourcing uh free trade was just starting to brew and manufacturing jobs were starting to head out so you had that lower pressure and prices still fell while immigration was still very, very high. And it wasn't like the quarter that we just saw where last year uh, was making up for the sudden drop that we saw the year before. So yes, immigration growth was very high, but it was also average with the other year. Whereas in the early 90s, it was like sustained persistent growth. Now, once you have an economy that no longer provides that economic opportunity, you are less competitive. And the heavier housing is as a weight, the harder it is for that economy to actually pivot into something new. N then you're going to have to combine that with the fact that by 2030, India's uh, low income population is going to be cut um, by two thirds and their middle class is forecast to basically dwarf our middle class uh, in terms as a share of their population their wealthy population is also going to be even larger. So now you're competing with this pressure where you're like, hey, there's like a 55% chance you can be middle class here. And India is going, India, which is where uh, the majority of our immigration or the largest segment of our immigration comes from, they're going, your chances of being middle class are now 67%. Are you going to try to risk everything you have to go to Canada? Or are you going to try, or are you going to, be here for the next 10 years as our economy triples in size. Does that all, does that answer to that question ultimately come down to yeah. like qualitative differences between the two, between the two um, countries? Like, I mean, it become a, talking, a you know, like a subjective question, like it's, preference. It's at that lifestyle point? and everything, man. Like the guy, this guy just nailed it right on the head, right? Like, like this is a long-term uh, and, and, and the funny part is in Europe where like the most like people look up to and stuff, that's where the biggest destruction is happening, right? Just like uh, if you look at just like the, uh, the age of the demographic and stuff. And even in China, they have a whole regime shift just because of that because they're huge demographic uh, 
decline is about to happen as well. So it's like all the countries except for India and like Latin America and like Africa have like this declining big chunks of population declining and these countries are even more advanced like if you compare india's transportation system and like everything there right now they're so advanced and they, they just jumped straight to like advanced from well, zero i've started sitting down into like some of uh like i've been sitting since i left politics <laughs> my brief career in politics uh i'm back to sitting in uh fund rooms and sort of discussing real estate and uh what their perspectives are and seeing, like, I always ask sort of where they're looking at for their growth and their allocation. And they, like, there's a lot in the U.S., but not nearly as much as it used to be. And they're not even looking at Canada for the growth. Like, they see a lot of growth, but they think that it's hype. Because when you look at things like per capita uh, GDP growth over the next four years, you're looking at the lowest. So you're not going to have consumers. You're going to have people who are really kind of stagnating in life. Um, so the growth opportunity and even the CPP, uh, like Canada's pension, they're looking at places like India, uh, South America, um, Africa. And like you're saying this thing with China, it's kind of like a narrative that I keep hearing where it's like Chinese people don't think that they have the opportunity there. And like in reality, most of the people that I know in mainland China are like, oh, my family is going to Canada, they're getting a passport, and then they're going to go to Africa, then they're going to go to South America, then they're going to go to all of these places where the government is trying to facilitate these massive growth plans. And as the world sort of divides, like we have this perspective in the, the United States that China and Russia are on the other side of this economy, and India is on the other side of this economy. And if you go anywhere else in the world, the majority of the trade like if it went down between Canada or if you do trade with China or you do trade with the United States, China has captured the majority of trade right across the world. Yep. Latin so, America, Africa, their investment ways. Yeah. You, they control. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, this is a different form of colonialism. Like this is Chinese colonialism and it's a very different perspective than we consider. Like we think that we're always going to be the best and that is probably what England thought um, after the Second War, and then the United States economy completely ripped that away and became the global standard. And someone else is going to become the global standard. I don't know if it's China. I don't know if, it, if I think China it, comes with its own social risks. I but. think what you other uh, what you said is more correct. Like I think it'll be like more just stability across. Right? It won't be like one person who's very powerful. It's like everybody has like a split power where nobody can overpower each other. So like what Ray Dalio said was he, he says like uh, Yuan would have same amount of market stake in the uh, in the open economy as would the uh, US and ja- Japanese. It'll just become one of the big reserve currencies and the market sure. share will stabilize. And World Bank wants to go, World Bank and IMF wants to go to a mixed yeah. basket instead of Because right? US, like, uh, like what you see is they can weaponize their dollar anytime, right? Because right now you get liquidity shocks. U.S. dollar goes through the roof. And now everybody all of a sudden have to spend more money just to buy stuff in global market, right? So so they see like the, just the population size in East is so huge and they're young, right? And they're, they're going to command so much growth and the money is going to come from that. They're not, they wouldn't want to live in that system anymore, right? That's what the other side I, of this. I got a duck, but Daniel, 
can you tell me how they handle the question of with that in mind and you all agreeing how you sustain immigration going forward? Because right now we're very competitive. People are coming here and you can browse through social media and find out, hey, you know, this isn't the Canada I was sold on. Um, how long does that take to get back to people? Because like right. that mindset for New York was always there. Like people still go, oh, I want to move to New York. But the yeah. people who can move to New York are going, I don't know, man, maybe uh, Baltimore, maybe Philadelphia. <laughs> but we don't have those here, really. Like, uh, yeah, I'll let you go. But um, and I want to I want to stay on the immigration topic a little bit longer. And then um, and then we'll try and jump over to uh, the property tax increase because we have Greg and Saeed. And I think um, Eric might be joining as well just to discuss kind of what's going on with that. Um, but let, so let's go Jeremiah um, and Peter and we'll talk on this immigration piece. I mean, just from a data perspective, I think it's, it's evident. I, I think the last time we hit an immigration record was in, in 1989, uh, you know, 1989 being not an exceptionally notable year for house prices uh, and uh, an economic growth thereafter. Um, and so I, I just like, I, I, I do find the, Price growth as a result of the immigration thesis difficult. Um, also, I think one of the important parts to note is um, last the last or Q two and Q three was a lot of uh, lagging processing of people who were already in the country. Like I think Ben Tao said this, you know, seventy percent of immigrants came from one country, and it was Canada, right? So it was people whose uh, student visas or whatever expired, and then they put them into the PR, and then uh, so the data points looked really big to hit that record last year. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I still think that like Canada is compelling, um, but I, I, it's, I don't know. It's, it, it's an interesting discussion regardless. Jeremiah, go ahead. I think he oh, meant by 2030. So like, it's like a 10 year curve. Right. Um, sorry, Jer, go ahead. I mean, I, I, I agree with many of the things that were said and Stephen, you know, brought up some good points. I just, I, I have a hard time, going to the extremes um, just because of what I'm seeing on the ground. And I know like on the, on kind of the macroeconomic uh, headwinds that are coming in against Canada. And I hear that very often, but you know, we're still seeing a massive amount of foreign capital coming in and it's not just from India and, you know, say Iran, for example. Um, I think even Abe talked about this too. Like we're dealing with uh, right now, um, uh, high net, uh, like family offices from Austria, uh, Turkey, uh, a fund from Turkey, um, fund from France. Like there's, there's all these different sources of capital who basically what they've told me is that, um, they look at different theses around the world and they look at where their money is competitive. Then they take a weighted basis on, on where they think that, you know, there's more, I guess you could say more qualitative uh, bases and they all have different ways of looking at this, but I'm, I guess I'm speaking a little bit more to the family offices uh, versus the funds. And, and then they decide where to go in the country. And then from there, they boil it down to, you know, which city to go into. Right. So we're, you know, we're dealing with Turkish fund, which is looking at Montreal, dealing with Austrian guys who are looking at Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, and, and what I keep hearing from all these different sources of global capital is that Toronto is, or Canada is very small on many scales. So what Stephen's saying isn't, isn't, he's not wrong. Like there's not a lot of reason to come here, but 
what we heard uh, from the Austrian guys is that once there's a connection to Canada and they understand the market, it's, it has a lot of substantive reasons to actually come here. And so on the global scale, once you get onto the radar of the global money, which is, is actually quite difficult to do for Canada, and then you can actually pick up some scale, like a lot of these guys are you know, buying purpose-built rental, brand new stuff, then, then they actually do want to come here. And I don't think, and going back to Stephen's point, I just don't think that we're going to see a, a substantive change and a shift in immigration in even 10 years. It takes a lot to turn off those taps. I mean, we have a backup of, what, two to three million per year who want to come in. And when you study the demographics of New York, you're actually looking at over the course of 78 to 85 years, roughly 70,000 people coming in per year. So that's how New York grew from like 1904 when it really started turning. So anyways, I, I just have a, a very hard time believing that the extreme is true. And I, it's not what we're seeing on the ground. And I can't tell the truth, you know, the future. And when you talk to the global capital, there's really two main problems that they look at when it comes to Canada. Number one is scale. So Stephen's right. When, it look, when you look at the funds, they don't want to come in. They don't want to like compete against the Brookfields, the Omers, Oxfords, uh, because they think they control the market more. Um, and then number two, it's that... Um, when they're looking at different areas around the globe, they find it easier to bring capital into places like the UK, which is still very attractive um, in Europe um, and in parts of Asia. So, I mean, that's what I'm hearing. Again, I don't know what it will happen in 10 years, but I do know that right now for everyone listening, that when global capital can look in Canada, they very much like the thesis for Canada. It's just a matter of scale. And do you think Greece is a good place to look into long term? Because they have very favorable laws for Canadians, like outside investment to diversify. In Gr- Greece specifically? Greece or like where in Europe do you see is a good place to invest for Canadians? Just to Well, like- I mean, I think we have our, our Greek experts on the line here, Abe. We'll let them talk about that. It, funny enough, I was at my clients uh, tonight who are Greek and we were talking about buying stuff in Greece. But I just say like on a Europe scale, you yep. see like, so Eastern Canada you, or Eastern Europe used to be a very advantageous place to invest. Um, since the war, all that capital has moved. We have a few, a few guys come over from there they pulling their capital out so eastern canada uh eastern europe sorry um was a very good place to invest because there's effectively a modernization of real estate across the board everywhere from latvia to uh so down to the czech republic well for so that that was a really good place to invest austria and germany are still very good places but it's it's such a tight market that you can only find opportunities in disparaging assets uh like in other words you know take slate for instance because they're canadian based they went in they were buying um uh, retail plazas and grocery anchored retail that had um roughly three three-year waltz left on retail plazas so three-year um 
left to renew leases. You know, they'd find that because generally the Europeans were more conservative when it came to retail and rural, rural-based real estate. And then, and then you saw um, some pretty substantive uh, pension funds that were looking for parking operations in in the UK and France, where you know it's very hard to find new space. So parking is actually a, a very consistent cash flow going property. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other ones that I'm not even that qualified to talk about, but those are the ones I've heard in Europe. And then I know Australia has some bouts of uh, interesting places too on the multifamily side. But other than that in Europe, like the, the yields are extremely tight unless you get into very specialized real estate and you take on more risk like Slate did with, you know, low yield walled stuff on the retail plaza side. Thanks, Jay. Um, I'm going to jump to Peter, then Abe, and then I think we'll try and pivot to um, the, this face-off between the province and municipalities on the property tax side, because I think that that's kind of pretty on-the-ground impact, and I'd like to discuss it. Um, so, uh, Peter, and then, yeah. then we'll get to Abe, and then we'll I'll probably bring in the rest of the panelists here. So, go ahead, Peter. Yeah, so, yeah, sounds good. Just something Stephen was saying before he left, and it's sort of... Uh tripped in my ear about like uh, not on the capital side but actually on, on, on the actual like human side of people moving here and how long sort of when they get here how long does that message go back to wherever they came from that it's maybe not the most rosiest place right or the the, the, the greatest pictures isn't painted and but I think of our buddy Vijay and he's like I, I listen to what he says when whenever something like that comes up and he's like well you know what from his perspective renting a one bedroom uh, condo downtown Toronto and paying 60-70% of your income uh, to for, for housing costs is a lot better than you know some village in India potentially right so and yeah. I, know, but I just wanted to bring that up because that, that you know Vizish just rang in my ear when Stephen said that yeah, for sure. And, and I think, I guess that's where the question becomes sort of what Stephen was mentioning is like, does India's ability to bring that whole cohort into the middle class compete with Canada's ability to offer the middle class to those individuals? And like, are they comparable middle class experiences? I, I don't know, Dan, right? but, Dan, but I before, think it's such an interesting discussion. Before Abe goes, can I, just because I, I know that you want yeah, to give it, it for right? Sure. Um, and I know Abe's got lots to say, so I, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. But listen, guys. I've lived overseas for five years. I'm, I'm a Punjabi Sikh, first generation born here, but I've spent, you know, five years overseas. I've lived out there. My parents have had property there. I'm telling you guys, this idea of like Indian growth or anything else, it, it doesn't matter. A billion people are out there. The capital flight to the West is not for GDP numbers. They're coming for property rights. They're coming for social security. They're coming for all kinds of reasons. And this notion that these types of economic outputs, if that really mattered, the Chinese money would have never left and invested all across North American uh, West Coast real estate. So this argument, if anything, if the economy is booming, more money is going to come out here. Even more dollars are going to flow out here. You can forget about this idea that they're going to keep their money out there. They need the insurance of having that money in a stable judiciary. So that's that's point number one. Point number two, a lot of the people that are getting approved on student visas and work permits, they may not be rich, but their parents have about a quarter mil to 300K of net worth that's sitting out there. And as soon as those kids get their PR, 
they're selling it all off to bring the money. Yeah, over. They're liquidating there and like transferring their wealth there. That's right. And so at the end of the day, and, and then the third point to Jeremiah's point in terms of European money, there are, so as a Sikh person, if I'm giving an anecdotal, forget India for a second. In the UK, the average Sikh family that moves from the UK to Canada, I'm going to assume between one to 3,000 families in the last two years have moved out here. And we're talking half a million to a million dollar net worth that comes through. So the Europe, European money may be the next tidal wave because you go to Vancouver, YVR, you go to Toronto, everybody landing there coming from Europe is bringing a million bucks or half a million bucks, money like that. So it can the Canada bull case is very real in the short term. I agree with some of the points Stephen made, et cetera. Great, people may leave, great. The people to fill those shoes is 10 to one. So many people are still gonna wanna come here and that may be the saving grace. I'm not saying that's a great policy, but all things considered, it is it is the only bull case. And I just wanted to make sure people understood as somebody who's lived overseas, I'm telling you, it's not, it doesn't matter what the GDP number is. If you're worried about if your kids are gonna make it home from school, if they're gonna get hit by a bus or whatever the case is, they're still lagging. And India is still about realistically 30 to 40 years behind where China is. So. That's going to be a steady flow for quite some time. That's all I wanted to make sure I got out there, but uh, great space, Dan. And, and, and just to quickly add to that point, if you look at all G7 countries, Canada's and Australia's population is like the lowest, right? Like after that, it jumps to like 40 to 60 range. Yeah. Just to balance that out in the Western world, because everybody in Europe is fucked, right? Like if you see policy-wise. So they're going to migrate to a place where they can regrow. So Canada is just like a place where it's like a, if you look at the, 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 like a population density wise, it's so behind and there's so much to be built here, right? Like just an infrastructure. Yeah. So that's where like the growth is like stability and growth is just guaranteed. Let's, let's hear Abe. Let's hear Abe for a second. Abe, go ahead. Yeah, I, and I'll pivot to uh, like to Abe, Abe as well. But I, the one thing, like I, I think it's important to mention what uh, what the trooper was saying there is like it is a magnitude thing, right? Like I think the Mumbai metropolitan area is twenty two point eight million population, and Canada is what like thirty, Bro, just over thirty. Like, like it's like the comparison yeah, like, to to California. Like in India is almost like all of downtown Toronto. Like my. Yeah, so it doesn't. Yeah, so it doesn't take. In, it doesn't take a ton. Yeah, she was in Mississauga, and she's like, "Why is it empty here?" Right? Like yeah, that's what yeah. they see. They say it's like it's it's like an empty area. It's almost like if you if you look at it like in a gr- growth wise, like it's like being in a town versus being in like yeah. A, it doesn't take much to move the needle. Exactly, um, Abe. Yeah, you're right. Let's get Abe on here, and then we'll jump over to uh, to discussion about uh, municipal planning, taxes, and the face-off between the province and the municipalities. Go ahead, Abe. Hey, Daniel. Uh, thanks so much for uh, having me, and uh, great uh, great speakers tonight, uh, Jeremiah and uh, Peter and uh, and crew. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. I'm sort of listening to all of this, and uh, you know, the truth um, kind of lies somewhere between all of what has been said and and I'll I'll be more specific cuz I you know I'm not someone who sits on the fence um so I guess in in the near term um uh Canada is is definitely uh, going to have its uh, its share of uh, of problems 
we um, Jeremiah spoke about uh, foreign investment. Um, the largest foreign investors uh, in Canada, believe it or not, are German pension funds. Um, I sit with um, uh, two investor groups probably every two weeks um, that manage uh, funds, uh, some in, you know, six, seven hundred million, uh, most of them in several billion. Um, what I can tell you is that um, uh, of late, uh, it is becoming more challenging in order to close these funds. Um, there's just a lot of um, um, uncertainty uh, uh, globally. Um, and the, you know, capital isn't necessarily coming here uh, the way it was before. Um, that's not to suggest that it will not come. It's just to suggest that this is the reality we find ourselves today, that there is a pause um, in terms of capital moving into Canada. Some of the commentary that I get is, um, yes, Canada continues to be a place of stability. That is true. Yes, Canada is, um, you know, provides a, uh, a decent quality of life um, for the most part. Yes, that's true. The problem that, it, that capital is finding moving into Canada are really two things, and I'm glad that someone had mentioned it. Um, there is uh, far too much concentration of capital um, that has found itself sitting in one asset class that we spoke about, real estate. The second issue is that your traditional players that exist in Canada pretty much have a lock on most of the um, real estate and ongoing development that is occurring in this country. Uh, primarily the Oxfords, the Brookfields, um, et cetera. And of course, very, um, uh, and a lot of private families that essentially rule the roost. Um, so capital is coming in um, more in a passive perspective um, and they are essentially funding a lot of these public companies, uh, including some privates. So the risk reward paradigm um, to some degree, and I don't want to say entirely because that would be wrong, has exhausted itself. I think people need to appreciate the fact that we've had a tremendous bull run. It's been 24 years uh, for those of you who uh, are big on data, um, but it's not been five years. It's been 24 years. It's been really since 1998 when things began. So you have to appreciate that this cycle has gone on um, incredibly long, and it has been fueled um, by immigration growth. There is no question. I know it was, uh, um, you know, something that we, we didn't want to admit as Canadians, but the reality is that is the truth. If you were to peel off uh, immigration flows, you wouldn't have the same level of demand uh, that, that we do. It's just a reality. It's just, uh, it's factual. Um, now, the, the problem that exists with the whole immigration um, story is that, and I think Daniel had mentioned it, is that in 1989, um, of which perhaps few of you had ever lived through 1989 um, and all the way to the early 90s, it was dismal here. In fact, for 10 years, you could shoot a cannon in Toronto. You wouldn't hit anyone, uh, likely wouldn't hit anyone that was doing a transaction in real estate. It was dead. Um, Nobody knows where the hell it's going. I certainly don't. 
Um, but what I do know is that credit growth is exhausted um, and that, yes, you will find uh, immigration that will continue to come here. And pieces of that immigration um, will uh, certainly participate in housing because they have the means to do so. The majority of, Im of immigrants that come to this country um, do not come with a half a million dollars or a million dollars, um, but they exist. Um, and I think the generic theme uh, from a global perspective in terms of capital movement is that Canada, uh, at least for the foreseeable future, um, is seen as the um, one of the places for investment, especially by those who are well healed and have a lot of money. So I don't necessarily believe that that theme will change um, in the in the next, say, you know, 10 years. But I will say that if you're looking for pro growth and if you're looking at um, global trends, Canada is not the place. We are a laggard in G20, um, and most of the money and capital is finding itself in emerging markets. So the reality is the very fact that India, um, of which I've been there um, as a child in, I guess, 1979, um, I can tell you that India is going to be the place to be for the foreseeable future, because the reality is the fact that they are 20 years behind uh, China. And that's where capital goes, where risk reward paradigms are greatest. And given the fact that you have so much underdevelopment. So India is a great place. Turkey, despite all of its um, issues, is a great place. Another person indicated and asked about Greece. Greece has taken the page out of the, U uh, out of the Canadian immigration, except they've done it one step better. Um, they have essentially altered their golden visa rules because what they found recently was that the entire center of the city of Athens has been hollowed out through Asian money because the uh, Chinese own the largest port in Europe, which is Piraeus. So um, the government has sort of stepped in and realized that you have locals that are no longer can afford um, uh, to exist in their native country because foreign capital has displaced them. And so now they've got different tax um, rules for different areas and different regions of the country to ensure that there is some sort of balance. Unfortunately, that does not exist in Canada and hence why we have such dislocations in housing, but that's for another so, day. So, so are they stopping people from Canada? Or no, 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 they're not. Oh, in fact, what they, they want you to come here, right? Like I saw a couple of uh, policy, I was reading, doing some research on my own. And I saw that like they're offering like PR and like you can have dual citizenship kind of stuff too if you do X amount of investment, right? Yes. Yeah, so that that hasn't changed. And like I said, they're taking the 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 you know the the page out of out of Canadian yeah. immigration. And except my belief is they're doing it better because they're protecting uh, the locals because at the end of the day the locals um, need a place to live. So there's no point being displaced. Um, and so they've done something very, very smart. Um, sadly, what we have not done here in, in Canada. That's, again, another issue. So Abe, I think Abe, when you talk up, about the global capital flows, uh, the flows yeah. of global capital, like you say, you know, everyone's looking for emerging markets. They're taking gritty yields like that's not what yeah. I'm hearing. And the reason is there's still 
these ultra high net worth families and you know i just comment back on your your first your first mention of like the funds for or i think back he's from talking Canada, about but... time horizon and volume versus uh yeah. canada will get its cut or not like what you are seeing yeah. i think no 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 but that's that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about like when you look at a risk reward basis when you talk to all these global capital sources yeah they like the mega funds like kkr for example they open offices in asia and india but for like the mid-sized guys who have you know one to five billion and they're allocating say 500 million to north america they're not going to look at turkey they're not going to look at the emerging markets because there's too much perceived uh, uh, political risk. So they still look at Canada on a yield basis and they say it's still a very good place to invest because we do still have much higher yields than Europe. I mean, the U.S. being really the first and foremost choice, yeah. but Canada is still a very good choice. And then the comment I'll, I'll even. Yes, and that's what I'm saying. I'm not. I'm yeah, not, I'm not okay. arguing. I thought you meant uh, Abe, before. Abe, I'll, I'll even bring it down a notch lower. Abe, the guy renting my basement right now, his parents, <laughs> they have a factory that makes clothes for. They they do all the prints for H and M, Zara, and all those guys. So why is his kid renting my basement, and they're not bullish for the next thirty years for the next Chinese run in India? You know what exactly. I mean? Like, come on, man. I get it. You're right. You're right on a very large level, but make no mistake, man. Like, I know you've lived overseas. I've lived overseas. I'm telling you, it is a dark yeah. world out there. It's very ugly. As shitty as Canadian quality of life is getting, it is still 10 times better than what these people are going to be able to provide for their kids in their respective countries. Yeah, yeah they, and it, bang on. That's still not and, to say, though, that, that there isn't huge growth opportunity. Like, I, I think capital... Absolutely. Yeah. Listen, guys, it, there's a lot of growth opportunity. You can yeah. go buy an acre of land there that's worth $250,000 Canadian in some Tier 1, Tier 2 market, right? And it is going to grow. But you know yeah. what? Let me know if you can collect that value if somebody else doesn't squat on it and the judges are paid off and the cops that's aren't exactly paid off right. and getting your money back. And that's out. the risk, you, right? You know, yeah. the, the exit is so unrealistic in terms of, but, you know what happened at McDonald's? But is that a risk for institutional? Out of cur- like, I mean, for like guys buying. Google McDonald's. You're, you're a bit quiet India. there, Mike. Look, Hard to see you. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, man. Look, Google um, McDonald's in India and what happened to them when they were out there, the judiciary is everything, guys. McDonald's learned their lesson the hard way. I'm not going to get into it and hog the space over what happened. You guys can Google it. It's kind of like uh, the Valley Inco thing in Guatemala too, right? Like when you see, I mean, I don't know if you saw that one. I'll post them in the nest. It's got tons of potential, but potential is not tangible, okay? And just because some billionaire or or a $500 million fund is going to make money out there does not mean the guy that's like a, you know, half a million to a $2 million net worth is going to benefit from that growth to that level. So I I agree with even the funds, Mike, they don't even go there either. Because you have you heard of guys like Dory Siegel, first cap, they looked at Brazil for a while, they looked at putting, you know, 250 million, 500 million, like again, small pennies on global capital flows, but they went to Brazil and they had major issues. Because Brazil real estate, like industrial real estate, had a really good thesis, but it had major issues when it came to securing the construction to actually complete the the facilities. So they backed out of it. Let's even bring it back. Let's even bring it back. 
So bringing no it back to even Canada, it, just one last point. Even bringing it back to Canada present day, okay, a lot of these immigrant families that came 20, 30 years ago, they're not selling their kids, they're not selling their house to retire, okay? They're not they're not looking to do anything with their real estate except give it to their kids as well. And so this this notion of like you know, yes, it's a terrible place that Canada has allocated all this money to single family real estate, right? Terrible. However, the reality is it's here and people's behaviors have modified. The psychology has changed. We're not in 1989 Toronto anymore. We're in 2022 where people have now planned their lives around giving their kids the house while still living and breathing and living in a multi-gen household. And this is repeating itself from everywhere, from Edmonton to Calgary to Winnipeg, all those smaller markets. It's not just a tier one, tier two market issue anymore. This is a Canadian-wide phenomena. The psychology has changed. And I don't even think, I don't even think the crash that everyone's been calling for I understand prices can keep going down, but the overall psychology is not the same as it was before in those macro environments. I've said my piece. Go ahead. Love it. Thanks, Mike. Daniel, can I just add, Daniel, too? You know this better than most because you invest in secondary markets. And I, you know, I grew up in the Sioux. I see lots of people moving to the Sioux from different countries and they saying this is the greatest country on earth because they come there and they have so much space and it's actually very affordable. I, I don't understand why, you know, everyone hyper focuses on Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, these large cities. But when you go, if you can find this job, I understand is economic based and you live in these smaller cities, the the quality of life for people coming from somewhere else, especially Sault Ste. Marie's had a big push from India and Africa from people living there because uh, the steel plant was bought by an Indian family. And, the people that I've actually met who have moved to the Sioux say they, those exact words. They say, you know, it's very affordable. I have so much open space. I have these great lakes. Like, it's very good living. So I, I'd assume the same, Dan, you probably heard the same thing in Cornwall. Yeah, Cornwall is amazing for it because there's a lot of people chasing, like, there's tons of unskilled labor. And then, um, you know, like, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, warehousing jobs and stuff like that. Walmart headquartered there. Um, Abe, if you want to say yeah. your, your piece here, and then I'm gonna gonna yeah. hand it over to uh, to Eric and Saeed and Greg, and I uh, want to chat a little bit about property taxes and, and uh, yeah, Bill I, 23 or whatever it is. I, I think the I think the guys have answered it, so there's really not much more for me to say. Thanks. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, okay, let's chat a little bit. Um, we we got super macro there on on the Aussie stuff. Aussie, I always say that wrong. Um, and uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about like some of these articles that we can see property taxes increase as high as 100 percent. I think was quoted in East Gwillenberry. Um And uh, Saeed, I know you've been been pretty outspoken about the value of, of land value tax and how getting away from development charges and stuff like that could could you know really expedite promotion of housing. And anyway, I, I'm just really like trying to get my head wrapped around what's going on here. And I think that it's something that the audience could really benefit from uh, a broad discussion on. So just love to hear everybody's take on it. Can I give a bit of an overview? Uh, yeah. Oh, Saeed, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Go sorry. For it. Go for it. Uh, yeah, I may start go with Saeed and then Greg, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, so can I just add a point? Absolutely. Did I lose you? I, I can't hear About you. Some of the stuff that was...
said earlier, you maybe that it. can sort of uh, lead us into the session. Uh, we talked about, um, you know, capital and income and real estate and interest. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can now, can yeah, but it was lagging for a bit there. Okay, yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, so there was some discussion about interest rates, uh, global capital, demand, etc. Um, so one thing I wanted to mention is, um, you know, we shouldn't be seeing these things, these phenomenons as a bad thing. The reason that demand and capital, um, you know, we're looking at this and speculation is just that we've not been able to facilitate growth in housing, right? And so, so the more demand that comes in, the higher the prices go, but that is really only because we haven't had the, the regulatory environment that would translate that capital into more housing development and rising uh, living standards for people who live here, right? So this is not the natural uh, course of uh, investment in real estate. That's not how it should be in a, in a natural normal market. Um, and so basically it's just inflating land values, right? Because we've created scarcity and, um, and it's, all, it's all going into land rents basically. Um, and so, yeah, maybe we can try, we can move into the, you know, the tax, uh, discussion from there. Um, but essentially when you look at, when you look at finances, um, you have property taxes, which are very low in Toronto compared to notable cities around the world. So, and we have development charges and we have land transfer taxes. We have a bunch of revenue tools. Um, but if you, if you pick these apart, what, what, what they're doing is development charges. They're adding to the, you know, the, the price floor for new development. And so they're making new housing more expensive, right? And so from a fairness perspective and from a policy perspective, if we want a healthy market, we should not be sticking new housing development with development charges. We should be splitting the cost of municipal finances on the cost of property. But better than that is the cost of, is the, uh, is the value of land because property is comprised of land and the built structure on top, right? And when you get a property tax bill, it tells you that you have a land value of this much and you have an improvement value of this much and this is your property tax bill. Um, and when, uh, when municipalities spend on public services, they increase land values, right? And so, so the way municipalities should fund their spending is through a land value tax because that would recycle and uh, recapture all of the spending that has gone into public services like uh, roads and um, you know schools and uh, sewers and all of that stuff. And so, and so, and so, what do I want to see? I want to see property taxes go up or land value taxes come in, which is uh, it, it's happened in cities outside of Canada before. It's happened in Canada 100 years ago in Vancouver. We had a land value tax, uh, which basically would mean the, prop the province would allow cities to uh, split the rate of taxation between land and improvements. And so you could reduce the they, tax. They already do that. They already do that in some municipalities like Surrey, BC. That's how they've always done it, where the land is separate from the house. So I'm not sure if that's anything that's new. Like it's, it's yeah. happening in Canada already. Yeah, so in Ontario, we don't have that, right? The, the province doesn't allow that in the municipalities in Ontario. It would be a new thing yeah, if they were to allow the, it. E even if you did that, 
municipalities, they just, they're just going to fudge the numbers. They're going to say, okay, well, the land is worth this and the structure's worth that. Who's actually going to go out there and survey all these houses anyway? They would, Nobody, they they would actually not. use provincial data. For That's that. what MPAC's for, right? Yeah. MPAC. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so... regardless, right? The the idea is the overall value, and uh, I I don't think it's a hidden secret that the money's in the land, right? So I mean, it, it, I understand what you're getting at, but I it it seems like it's like more of a bureaucratic thing. It's not a tangible thing. But overall, the value turns out to be the same for the, for the most part. I I don't think that really changes how to get more taxes out of the property. That actually, I don't know if that's not, true. That is not it... true, right? So, like, you can look at, like, basically any condo tower in Toronto, and they're charging property taxes, right? Which is, you know, the, the cost of the land, the value of the land, and then the value of the structure. And the value of the structure is, is quite high. And if you had an empty plot of land adjacent to that, like, obviously, the condo's value from a property perspective is way more, even though their land value is, is probably equivalent. Right, so you're actually taxing all the people who, um, in general, are actually consumer less or fewer cons- services, or are consuming them at a scale which makes it cheaper for the city, uh, and, and that's really the whole, you know, inequality of how tax systems right now are actually applied throughout the GTA and has turned our municipalities into like a, a financial mess um, overall. Like that, that really is that phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was more or less speaking to single family detached, but 100% agree with you in that specific scenario. Yeah, like uh, you guys totally make sense. Are they trying to cap growth? Is that what they're trying to do, like in Toronto? Because see, like what I'm trying to figure out is like in in US when that crash happened, stuff like uh, counties that went bankrupt, like Detroit and stuff, houses fell a lot, but then their property tax were very, very high. So it messed up the market a little bit for short term. So, like, do you see uh, that's what Toronto, they printed so much money. They know they, they might not have enough money from income tax revenues they, just to service the debt because they actually printed more than Japan per capita. So, Toronto didn't print money, right? Like, it, it's, it doesn't have a, a central bank that can do that. that that's federal. And yeah. municipalities in, in Ontario, anyways, are actually not legally allowed um, to run budget deficits, although um, almost all of them are in a budgetary deficit that gets made up by the province and our federal government at a later time. So why does Toronto get to charge double property tax? Oh, sorry, land transfer, stuff like that. Well, uh, sorry, so you, do you want to take this? Um, I, I realized it was your slot originally, um, but I'm uh, happy. You can go ahead. It's all good. No, if you guys want to know. That's fine. Yeah. So the reason why cities like Toronto have raised development charges and other uh, non-property tax levies and fees is because property taxes are not politically popular, um, just like most taxes are, are not popular. And, you know, uh, prior to the introduction of development charges, cities would be responsible for the maintenance um, and, you know, maintenance of infrastructure, replacement of infrastructure, and then all those services that uh, a city offers. And the post-war boom that you know followed, um, you know, with the suburban expansion, we kind of created these one life cycle communities where developers would build out the initial uh, infrastructure, but because all these uh, municipal services and infrastructure—roads, sewers, electrical, uh, you know, pipes, what, whatever, and so forth, and what have you—are um, much more proportionate in scale to 
you know, land and frontage uh, and not necessarily, you know, density, although, you know, there's also a limit to that. You know, if you go really dense, obviously it, it puts stress on the infrastructure. When you do the math, a lot of these properties are not actually paying for themselves over time and or they're not really contributing on a net basis to the city over time. And so what has happened to our cities is that they've kind of been in this budget, like this structural budget challenge, right? Because the vast majority of their land area is now these sort of unproductive uh, neighborhoods from a, a taxation perspective. And property taxes therefore have to rise to compensate for that. But once again, property taxes are not very popular. And so a lot of cities have hidden this by charging a lot of taxes and fees on development so that as development is occurring, it is in a way used to subsidize the other neighborhoods that also require changes to infrastructure as well. Um, and, you know, in Toronto specifically, we hear this all the time, growth plays for growth, and we're just, you know, collecting the taxes that we need in order to facilitate the growth in, in you know, that this new housing is adding. But if you really dig into it, you'll see that things like libraries um, are a totally valid source for funds raised from development charges. And I, I think what we're sort of having this debate on, at least in policy circles, is, well, how much of a new growth should really be paying for, quote unquote, itself, and how much of these things should actually be paid for or capitalized by the growth in the property tax base in general that these, uh, you know, that, that growth is allowing for. And is that fair? And, you know, if you actually look at the history of DCs, you know, we have this chart that I actually think Saeed made, um, or one of our other members at More Neighbors Toronto. And, you know, I think something since like 2013, development charges have tripled. And even in, with inflation, um, you know, inflation's gone up like 20%. So did, did the world of infrastructure and servicing get 3x more expensive in that time? Of course not. A political decision has been made to change the nature of how we divvy up our taxes and pay for our city, to put much more of it on new development. And yo and behold, we have a housing crisis and this factor might not be the only factor, but it certainly has made things worse. Sorry for uh, the rant. Yeah, that, uh, I think they're just trying to control growth in certain areas and pushing people out, right, using policy. All I know is assessments are higher than market value, and those property taxes are never going back down. So Yeah, I don't know that's, a, fair, that's a BC thing, though. Like, Ontario assessments are, are way low by comparison to... But the, reality is like, but the reality is, like, municipal assessment corporations are, are revenue neutral, right? Like, the, yeah, the think, mill rate changes... It's, yeah, but it's regional specific. So there, but I'm I'm totally open to learn about Ontario. But yeah, like I think we already we see a very different tax system here, where like you got the land transfer tax, then you have the property tax that that is pretty already crazy, and the values they use are pretty crazy, and the appeals process is horrendous. So regardless of governments, I know it may not be politically popular, but they get away with it. You know, ultimately places like this they do get away well with it's just it death and taxes <laughs> like yeah that's right yeah that's but it's, right it's not even about fair like it's funny when people start using words like fair it's not about or anything. i understand 
It's about policy, it's right? Like, like they're trying to push. Of course. They're trying to achieve. They have a different agenda, right? So if you understand what their agenda is, you try to make money off of it. You can't like fight the government. And 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 what they're doing is correct, right? Like they just don't want everybody in Toronto because that would become the next Japan. You don't need to have that happen. I know Japan is. Is that like? Work. Is that like actually what the policy objective is though? Like I, I don't know. Like I don't know. I, I don't think. Don't know, I think. I don't think that's the case. I don't sorry, think so. Sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm over talking. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, but I I think that's not what their policy objective is. But what, that's the direction they're taking because that taxes don't really come back, right? And I was thinking it was because because they printed so much money and now they need funds. But you guys are disagreeing, I think. I'm trying to well, figure like that, not, that. That wouldn't impact municipal. Like I wouldn't have any impact on municipal. Like like let's call like just for the purpose of the discussion call it in quotation marks printing money which isn't necessarily exactly how, how it's mechanized yeah, they're, they're not connected but it has nothing to do not with connected. municipal government like right? the municipal level the municipal level and central banks are it has nothing to do yeah. with it the main thing is though municipalities are not eager to lose the gains and values either so you can bet that municipalities are worried too about a correction so everybody has a vested interest to make sure this ponzi keeps going because if those values drop, well, people aren't going to want to pay their taxes if the value that the city is putting on your house is like yeah, 30% this, higher than this, market this rate. This isn't and really how things work here in Toronto, right? Like, essentially, the city decides yeah. how much property tax revenue wants to collect. It looks at the values of all the property, and it comes up with its mill rate based on the value that it's looking to correct. So, like... Uh, I think it's the same in Alberta too. So that's a. I think most. I think all provinces are like that. Like assessment is revenue neutral, right? So they come up with a value, but it doesn't really matter. Like the province, the, the municipality needs to hit a certain amount to to be to have not have a um, a deficit in their budget, and so they reverse engineer the amount of tax that they collect using the mill rate. Or and that's why that's why development charges don't go into the operational budget because they're not tech, like they're technically supposed to be set aside because they're a separate revenue stream and they're not. Like based on a predictable thing, this this the assessment of property, right? The the anecdotal would be is that my assessment came through, and eighty nine percent of it is dedicated to land value only, and the rest is structural. Right. So what do you do? Right. That's just that's just how it is. That, but that's like that would be reflective of the 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 appraisal value of most properties. I think in in certain areas. I think that's what Saeed's and Eric are trying to get to. Right. It's like. The value of the, the the value of the dirt has has gone up substantially, and that's what happens in an, in a, in a market that's in this you know in a state of excess and demand, I, right? And and I think it's a population density thing, right? Like yeah, that's how that they, happens for sure. Yeah, right. Like if you look at Japan, like that's exactly what they did, right? Like if you buy a parcel of land, it's worth multi million dollars, and it forces only specific groups of people can afford it. So, so like the value of the city keeps on going up. Same thing happens in the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean that's urban economics, right? Um, Greg, I wanna I wanna let you uh, jump in here and and talk a little bit about sort of the planning side and and the impacts that you've seen on the ground and and whether or not this is actually materializing in like just obviously changes that we're seeing in the way municipalities are choosing to collect revenue. But has has there been any meaningful change in and also the way that they're developing property? Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. It's been great space so far. I um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What what we're still seeing, I mean, from from the people we deal with, is that people are still, you know, whether they have property or they've acquired property, they're looking to 
get their entitlements, uh, increase zoning, increase density, whether they build right away or not, based on uh, approvals they get is another story, but people are still looking to get that. I think, um, but I, I think all this development charge and property tax stuff is interesting. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's a reaction to the province's Bill 23 that was made law late last year. And so municipalities are threatening all these outsized property tax increases or service cuts um, or both uh, as a result of some of these changes. And I mean, effectively, Bill 23 reduced development charges payable to cities in a couple of ways. There was a, there's a sliding discount that uh, takes place over the next five years for municipalities that have passed development charge increases in the, in the last year. And it also removes development charges from affordable housing projects and some missing middle housing, which is a good thing and, and is long overdue. Um, I mean, the intent of it is to help housing creation. And in Toronto, development charges already went up 49% last year across the board. Whereas Toronto's, I think the residential tax increase this year was 5.5% by comparison, which I think is, I mean, admittedly an apples and oranges comparison, but uh, I read that the owner of a home assessed at around $700,000, which apparently is the average assessed value, getting at your point about, you know, the impact assessments being kind of woefully short of what the actual value is, that somebody with a home at that assessed at that value would pay an additional $230 over the year as a result in their taxes. I mean, that's, you know, you own a house in the city and, and people are really up in arms about, you know, spreading the cost of a week's grocery bill over the course of a year. I mean, maybe it's the principle of it, though. And uh, but I think and I agree um, with my, my more neighbors friends on here. There's been an over-reliance on development charges in Toronto and, and in other cities in the province. And Toronto brings in a lot of money from them. So so why not? I mean, they're used for you know things in the capital budget, new services, facilities. That's that's been covered. Um, but in comparison to other funding tools, I think they're overused and we're starting to see the impact of that specifically on house prices. Um, I mean, if you look at, I pulled up some numbers, if you look at the DCs that you'd pay in Toronto in 2009 and compared it to what was approved by council in 2022, um, the difference is incredible. So in 2009, the amount of money you would pay in development charges on a single detached house was $12,000. In 2022, it's 139,000. So that's an increase of 1100%. Same thing with a, a one-bedroom apartment. In 2009, you would pay 4900 bucks. In 2022, 53000 Again, about 1,100% increase. Um, so that, that's, that's considerable. I mean, it's, I guess, a lack of balance across cities' funding practices. Um, all, kind of, to, to put it bluntly, to coddle low-rise homeowners because they vote a lot, uh, as Eric and Said mentioned. Um, in, I also think it creates a systemic risk in the way cities are funded. You know, DCs are great when there's a lot of growth, like over the past 14 years in Toronto. But when, once things slow down a bit, if they do, you know, you might be left with a bit of a budget vulnerability. And, you know, like, like an over-reliance on the land transfer tax. If you don't sell a lot of houses in a year in a municipality, you might have to dip into reserves to make up that shortfall. And, and I agree with the other comments about the reason DCs have increased is because they're, they're politically, you know, not a big deal. As a politician, you can't really jack up user fees too much or residential property taxes. But DCs, you know, if you're going to hit up the developers for more cash, nobody really cares about that. Uh, they should because it has downstream effects. But that, you know, some people just don't want to think about that. Similarly, uh, similarly, uh, when it gets it doesn't get talked about enough, there's an over reliance on commercial property taxes in the city compared to residential property taxes. So anyway, 
all this, it shows you what a city's priorities are, who wins, who loses, you know, are businesses having to pay ever increasing taxes to keep residential property taxes low or new homeowners paying DCs that get passed on to the purchase price. Um, and, and this pushes home values up incrementally. In my view, things are out of balance. And I think right now you're seeing a rebalancing and that's somewhat painful and unpopular for cities. And that, and what, so like, and that's sort of being forced upon them by like, by, by provincial policy, I guess, like, cause they, the, the DC, their right to charge DCs has sort of been stripped away. I think the way that the municipalities that are looking at, you know, significant percentage of tax increases, it just shows you how much they've relied on things other than the residential property taxes over the last decade to fund, um, operations or, or capital and, Fair and enough. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Eric, you want to jump in here? And then uh, I think we might make an effort to wrap up. We've been, we've been ripping for a while here. Yeah, understood. So I'll, I'll make a couple of comments because, I, I, you know, I think one of the first things I want to say is developers don't pay taxes. The people they sell the property to, they pay taxes. And also, you know, development charges don't just raise the cost of new housing. They raise the cost of all housing. The only difference is existing homes that get sold get pocketed at way larger profits than anyone who's actually building new housing. That's just how the cookie crumbles from a math perspective. And, you know, I think one of the most galling things about like this entire conversation, and, you know, you can even look to the, you know, you know, uh, Association of Municipalities of Ontario, who've claimed that these changes will cause uh, about $5 billion in, in damage overall over, you know, 10 years, which ends up being about 55, $550 you know, million dollars a year across municipalities ends up being about 1% or less of municipal budgets overall. Um, like that's really what their own organization has been saying about some of the changes to DCs, which include, um, you know, a reduction of 25%, I believe, on uh, rental homes of any kind, and then waivers for a designated a provincial, um, designated new housing that meets the provincial pro. Um, definition for affordable housing, which I believe is 80% of market rate. Um, and you have cities like Vaughn coming out and saying, oh, this is going to be a 70% increase. No, it's not. They're not really being fully honest about what the implications here are. Um, and if you even look at the math from their own association of municipalities, they did not come up with such extravagant numbers. And so you know, I think what we're also seeing here is a lot of cities taking an opportunity to try to fix some of their structural financing challenges by saying that they have to do this because, you know, big bad Doug Ford is like forcing them to do this because of the changes to development charges. But there is not a dramatic change like year after year to what um, cities can charge for market housing, there is simply limits on how much more these types of charges can can really grow. And I, I think overall, you know, they've they've grown quite enough. And what we need, even more importantly, is for our cities to really consider when they're thinking about infrastructure and you know fun, financing housing. This whole conversation about oh, well, like the, the growth should pay for itself. But a lot of the growth requires a ton of new infrastructure. Like there seems to be no incentive for in cities whatsoever 
to direct growth in both the methods and in the places that infrastructure costs for allowing that are not going to be dramatically high. Um, and so what, you know, the reforms that cities really need to be pushing towards is where do we build housing and in what form such that the cost infrastructure isn't that high or we're using areas that already have a lot of it, which if you look at almost any municipality in the GTA, the vast majority of their land areas and neighborhoods are losing population. Their existing structures have had appliances, for example, readapted that are much more efficient than when they were built. There are a lot of neighborhoods where there's not a ton of infrastructure challenges. And so the province in some way here needs to take that next step and push cities towards growing in ways that are also going to be less expensive for the city as a whole. Um, you know, I think we're starting to have that conversation, but I, it certainly needs to come uh, a lot further than it has. Yeah, excellent point. Do you, uh, are you optimistic that it will? Like, you know, the, I guess you're talking about, you know, like more infill, missing middle housing, gentle density, etc. Um, I think it will. Um, you know, we're seeing Toronto, you know, finally starting to take some action on this front. But, you know, I think we're going to run into a political reality soon. I mean, young people uh, can't afford shit. Um, you know, like the economy is really, you know, despite all the numbers saying things are good, the opportunity to establish your life here, if you're a middle class young person, frankly, is, I'm just going to say bullshit. And a lot of young people don't own a ton. Um, we're living in a lot denser environments. Um, we're not, you know, no one's dreaming anymore of like owning that single family home with like a, you know, a two car garage. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, I can never dream to have this type of lifestyle. So why should our politics protect um, places like, like this from ever changing? Um, that politics is happening. And, you know, I even hear about the land value tax all the time. Oh, who's going to support a land value tax? Well, very quickly, when you're putting a lot of people to, you know, making all the growth very high density, a lot of people are going to realize that their interests are in actually changing the methods of taxation as well. And so I even do think that these conversations are going to happen over time. So in some ways, you know, a lot of the policies that have prevented places from changing at all, I believe over the next 10 years are, are, are going to change quite significantly. And, and, and that's just a demographic outcome. It, all, it always comes back to politics. That's the that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, we can sit around and, and nitpick at, at all the problems. The problems are easy to see, but this is politically designed. And uh, ultimately, how we vote is what's going to decide uh, prosperity moving forward in this country. And I agree with you. Everything you said is 100% right. Young people are screwed. I would say I was in that demographic, too. Luckily, you know, I've, I've had some lucky breaks in life and able to establish myself. But I 100% agree with you, and I'm very scared for my kids. And uh, that's why I'm very opinionated on uh, when it comes to real estate, because it is a lot of it, especially in Canada, is politically driven. Yeah, and I think the politics are changing. And, you know, I even look at my own friends, right? Like, my university friends, I mean, even I myself moved to the States originally, um, those who didn't take rat race jobs, you know, they're not consultants, lawyers, working in tech or in finance. A lot of them are stuck at home. And, you know, 
biological clock and, you know, times for starting families in life are real. A lot are looking for the door. And, you know, what, what disappoints me the most is how much of the conversations about housing in this city, we talk about community, but communities for young people don't matter. We're, we're, we're kind of seen as expected to go away eventually. And, and, you know, that's, that's the thing that I think is, is going to change and faster than I think a lot of people realize. Can I, can I say something spicy? You got to vote blue. That's what I would say. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely true. I'm Uh, I'm joking. I don't don't want to get super spicy, but I'm just saying, right? I mean, it is political, guys. Like, let's get real, I mean, I would say we need to vote kind of... something to consider. That's all I would say. I think we kind of need to vote the entire generation of leaders out, you know, kind of across the board and allow that change to occur. Um, You know, like we look at, you know, blue... Primarily, young people need to just show up at the polls. Agreed. Honestly, no. like I, I, our interests aren't going to get represented if we don't vote for it. No, we're seeing, you know, the conservatives in Ontario say about talk about doing the right things or adopting really, you know, strong language. And then they, they deliver the policies and like they're just, you know, in a lot of cases, really not going nearly as far as they need to. I mean, they legalize triplexes in like the lamest possible way. Right. So, you know, the idea that the conservatives are coming to save us, you know, Conservatives have been in power for six years now. Uh, I'm not saving us yet. Right. So I'm oversimplifying. But yeah, I mean, it is a voter apathy, too. Like Daniel's 100 percent right. We got like 40 percent voter turnout. And, you know, this is what happens when people don't care. People that shouldn't be in office get into an office and we got bad policies. So it it does start from the politics. So that's that's the basic. Yeah, it's a tough one to sell. Um, I'm going to try and wrap this up here just because we've been doing it for, for a while. I want to appreciate or express my appreciation for everybody who, who's uh, taking the time to, to wait around and, and, and speak and, and have a conversation and love to continue doing these things and have any of you back in the future for sure. Um, I'm always happy with how these turn out. Uh, next week, I think we're going to try and do the coast to coast thing. So get realtors from all the different uh, cities across Canada, get a little update of what's happening in their market because uh, we will have Korea stats. So Canadian real estate stats go out on the 15th. Um, and then I think the following week should be after the January 25th, uh, I'm going to say Bank of Canada rate hike, uh, probably 25 bips, but welcome to, uh, anybody, if anybody wants to take the other side of that bet, uh, just maybe send me, uh, a tweet in, in the thread for this. Um, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it everybody. And, uh, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend.